And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 44, which can be found on page 45 of your Pew Bible, if you're using that. Page 45 of the Pew Bible, we'll be reading Genesis 44, beginning in verse 18, in just a moment. We are studying together the lives of the patriarchs, men and women who trusted God and lived as sojourners in the earth. They had no Bible, but they knew a little bit about prayer and sacrifice as it had been passed down to them from Adam and Noah. They journeyed around the promised land, making altars and offering up worship wherever they lived. These were people of faith who in the words of the book of Hebrews did not see the things promised to them, but believed in them. And God counted their faith as righteousness. He dwelt with them, met with them, and even wrestled with them. Today we again are looking at the great crisis in the life of Jacob, the wrestler. Jacob has wrestled with the angel of the covenant, and he has been blessed by God. He survived many hardships, including his twin brother Esau, who for a time sought his death. And yet... And yet, his family remains a disaster. He has 12 sons, but only two sons from his favorite wife, Rachel. In fact, Rachel dies while giving birth to Benjamin, his 12th and last son. Now, these two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, the children of Rachel, are loved and favored by Jacob. He marks Joseph out as the true heir and father's favorite by giving him a coat of many colors, or as some translate it, a long coat. That is the coat of a foreman or manager or a man of means. To make matters worse, Jacob sends Joseph to check up on his 10 older brothers to watch over them. Joseph has already told his father and his brothers that he has had visions in which they bow down to him. Unsurprisingly, the ten brothers despise Joseph. In a moment of terrible cruelty, they throw him in a pit and sell him into miserable slavery. They lie to their father, telling him that Joseph was killed by wild animals. And for 20 years, for 20 years... The ten brothers lie and watch their father live in misery and mourning. Meanwhile, we have seen how Joseph, through many hardship, hardships, arises out of misery and comes to the greatest place in the kingdom of Egypt. But despite this rise in power and circumstance, Joseph makes no attempt to find his brothers and father or to communicate with them. Joseph names his first son forgetfulness because he just wants to forget. Things may never have changed in this disaster if not for a horrible famine that has come to the region. The famine forced Joseph's brothers to travel to Egypt and seek food. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they do not recognize him as he is now dressed as an Egyptian and 20 long years have passed. Joseph speaks to them through a translator and is careful not to give himself away. In a moment of sheer brilliance, 
Joseph decides to test his brothers to find out if they are changed men, if it is even safe for him and his family to be near them again. The test comes in two parts. First, he keeps Simeon, one of the brothers, as a captive in Egypt. He wants to see if the others will come back for Simeon or if they will simply divvy up Simeon's side of the inheritance. Second of all, though, Joseph makes Simeon's release contingent, contingent on the return of Benjamin, his only full brother. Joseph does this to make sure that Benjamin will be safe. He knows that Benjamin is now dad's favorite in his place. He is the last biological child of Rachel. And the test is set. Will they love Simeon enough to return? And will they bring Benjamin safely with them? We pick up our reading this morning where Elder Boyajan left it off. We are at chapter 44, beginning in verse 18. Because of the length of the reading, I'll encourage you just to remain seated. We'll be reading through to chapter 45, verse 15. So beginning in Genesis 44, verse 18. Then Judah went up to him, that is to Joseph, and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. And he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother go, goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I came to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he, that is Jacob, sees that the boy, Benjamin, is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy, as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself 
before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have there. I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, once again, we praise you and thank you this morning for our elder brother, our Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made a way for us into your presence. How thankful we are for the reconciliation that we now have with you because of his faithfulness. And because of that reconciliation, Father, we pray now that you would feed us with the stores of life and goodness that are in him. Open our hearts to consider your word and open my mouth to preach it faithfully, for we pray it and ask it in that greater Joseph's name. Amen. The text before us today, I know it's a lot of verses uh, that we're looking at, but uh, it's not uncommon for pastors to take all of this at once. It actually kind of needs to be done that way so that we can understand what's happening. So I want to break it down for you so that we can study it uh, more carefully into three big sections that are there in your text. There are three scenes. First, in Genesis, really beginning in Genesis 43, but we'll focus on 44, 1 through 17. You have, uh, we see Joseph's sort of final test of his brothers. Joseph goes after Benjamin, threatening to keep Benjamin as a slave in order to see what his brothers will do about that. Then in Genesis 44, beginning in verse 18 through 34, the end of the chapter, a new leader in the family emerges. Judah's courage 
and faithfulness opens the door for reconciliation. And then finally, in Genesis 45, 1 through 15, the brothers are reunited and reconciled as Joseph dramatically reveals himself. So let's, let's look together at these scenes and what they teach us about sin, reconciliation, and God's love. So first of all, look with me at Joseph's final test of his brothers. The test really begins in chapter 43 and runs through chapter 44, verse 17. We won't read chapter 43 this morning for sake of time, but let me summarize it for you briefly. In chapter 43, the brothers, again on the point of starvation, travel to Egypt for a second visit. This time they have brought uh, Benjamin with them. They can do this because Judah has convinced Jacob uh, to trust him with Benjamin's life. Remember, Joseph has required that they bring Benjamin with them if they return, and he's holding Simeon as a hostage until they bring Benjamin. Once in Egypt, chapter 43, Joseph invites the brothers to a great feast. Because Joseph is now an Egyptian lord, a great Egyptian lord, he sits at a great table separate from his brothers, probably above his brothers. The Egyptians viewed themselves as a superior race and would not have understood Joseph's dining with Canaanite herdsmen. Here we have a potent hint of the way in which the Egyptians will view the Jews by the time of Moses. As a lesser race, the Egyptians will seek to kill the infant males and cull the herd of this servant class. But for the moment, this is a great honor for the brothers to feast with Egypt's prime minister. Now at this feast with Joseph, two things catch the attention of the Levin brothers. First, Joseph arranges the brothers in the order of their birth. And they naturally begin to wonder, how does he know this? I mean, some of these guys were born just months apart to different wives. So how does he know the order of their birth? Second of all, Joseph feeds all the brothers from his own table, probably a symbol of how he is going to provide for them and is promising, in a sense, covertly to provide for them in the future. But then he gives five times the food to Benjamin. They all have more than enough, but Benjamin is absolutely surrounded with food and sumptuous dishes. Now, do you see what uh, Joseph is doing in 43? Joseph wants to see how his brothers will respond to Benjamin being favored. Are they jealous? Are they going to make Benjamin disappear as they did with Joseph? Joseph is, we would say today, priming the pump a little bit to see what they'll do. The next morning, now we're in chapter 44, the part that Elder Boyajan read. The next morning, Joseph has a silver cup planted in Benjamin's sack. In Egyptian culture, a cup like this was used for fortune telling. Now, I don't believe that Joseph did that. He had dreams from God. He didn't need to use magic and witchcraft. However, his brothers don't know that. So they are horrified when they are accused of having stolen this sacred object. In fact, in verse 9, the brothers say, whoever has done this should die. 
and we will all become slaves. In light of all that Joseph has done for them, this would be a terrible act of what the Bible calls returning evil for good. But the steward, who is kind of acting here on Joseph's behalf, very wisely says to the brothers, no, no, that won't be necessary. We're not going to kill anyone today. But whoever we find the cup with, that person will have to stay and be a slave to my master. Of course, the cup is found in Benjamin's bag where it has been planted. And here, just here, you see, we've reached the crux, the center of Joseph's testing of his brothers. All they have to do is look the other way. Remember, as far as they know, Benjamin is guilty. Benjamin did this. Joseph, Joseph, you see, is giving them the opportunity to get rid of the favorite son, to improve their own lives, and they'll have the perfect alibi. Joseph primed the brothers the night before with jealousy by favoring Benjamin, and now everything is set up to make it as easy as possible for the other brothers to say, well, he did it. He did the crime. He's got to do the time and leave him to his fate and return and to get their vengeance again on the brother that daddy loves and loves over them. Now, as much as we may appreciate the skill with which Joseph has tested his brothers, we may also find ourselves struggling a little with what Joseph does here. Are we allowed as believers to test other people like this? Are we permitted to set up situations of entrapment in order to test someone's repentance? Calvin and a lot of other commentators say, no, absolutely not. More importantly, Jesus tells us how we are to deal with brotherly sin. In Matthew 18, Jesus says this, if your brother, that's the situation, right? If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Jesus's command requires no gamesmanship, no elaborate tests. You humbly confront the person face to face. If they do not respond, you involve other believers. So what should we make of Joseph's behavior here? I think the simple answer is that this is a very unusual and special case. I think Joseph is being led by the spirit of God in a unique way to do this. So much so that it's not really Joseph anymore who is testing, but God who is giving this final test of the brothers. If it were just Joseph doing this, if he was just toying with his brothers, then we'd have to condemn him. But the scriptures want us to see that God is the one testing the brothers here. Joseph is simply his instrument. In fact, did you notice That in both visits to Egypt, the first one we saw last time, the second one we're looking at today, the brothers confess, at least privately, that they know God is behind this. 
In verse 16, Judah says something kind of cryptic, but I think really important. In chapter 44, verse 16, he says, What shall we say to my Lord, that is to Joseph? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. I don't think he's referring, commentators, uh, I think, agree on this. He's not just referring to the cup that, in his mind, one of them took. Notice it's in the plural. God has uncovered who we are, who we really are. God is dealing with us. And if you remember our sermon last time, same thing. When Joseph put the brothers into prison for a short time, what did the brothers say to each other? God has found us out. They sense, they know, this is not a game. This is God. Our God never tempts us. He never appeals to our sin nature to lure us into sin. That's temptation. Temptation is appealing to someone's sin nature to lure them into sin. God never does that. But the scriptures, the Old and New Testament, tell us again and again that he does test his people. But, and this is key, he doesn't do it to punish us or torture us. That's what we often imagine. That is what the brothers imagined at first. But in the end, what did they come to see? That God tried them, God tested them in order to bless them. Only through trial can we be changed. It's the sad and hard truth to admit, but it's, it's true, isn't it? Only through testing can we be refined. And so it is God here, through Joseph, giving to the brothers the last and final test to test their repentance, but not to toy with them, not to torture them, but so that the family might be restored, that they might be restored in their relationship to the Lord and to each other. So that's the first scene we have in our text this morning. Secondly, there's a second scene given to us. Just as the trap seems to be closing, just at this critical moment at the end of verse 17, when they can walk away and leave Benjamin there, a new leader emerges in the family. And it's fairly unexpected. If you know Judah's story up to this point, Judah has not been a good guy. But suddenly, in verses 18 through 34, we have a second scene. And here, Judah pleads for Benjamin. It's an incredibly noble speech on so many levels. In fact, when Judah is done speaking, Joseph is so moved by what Judah has said that he can no longer contain himself. Judah's response is really the turning point in the story and it points us forward to the day when Jacob will bless Judah and call him the ruler over his brothers. We won't go back through the whole of the speech, but the heart of it, I think, can be found in verses 30 through 34. Look with me once again at those verses, verses 30 through 34. Now, therefore, said Judah, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, as soon as I go home to Jacob and Benjamin is not with us, then... As his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol or the grave. 
For your servant, that is Judah, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let Judah, your servant, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Can you see the massive transformation that has happened here in the life of Judah? When we first ran into him, he was urging his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. Then for 20 years, he watches his father suffer. He lets him believe that Joseph is dead. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen? How does a son like Judah become that hardened? Well, if you've been with us in our study, you know, dad never liked Judah all that much. Judah was consumed by bitterness and jealousy. He had the wrong mother, the unfavored wife. And every day he watched his father love Rachel and Rachel's boys, Benjamin and Joseph. Can you imagine what that would have done to you? But here is an old and wonderful trick of our great God. When you hate someone, when you resent them and judge them, as Judah did his father and Joseph for so many years, there's nothing better for your soul than for you to find yourself falling short. This whole famine experience has revealed to Judah his own heart. How can he stand in aloof in judgment and rage against his father and brother when he conspired in this terrible act of treachery? He's really come to see, I think, that he is no better. And in fact, he is quite a bit worse than his father and his brother, Joseph. You see, that's what motivates this whole speech. Judah is no longer saying, yes, I did that, but look at what my dad did to me. Look at what a pain my brother was. Now he is saying, the Lord has found out my guilt. Let me be a slave because this is what I deserve. Here's a man who sold his own brother into slavery in order to satiate his jealousy, his disappointment. But now to spare his father's feelings and life, he will take slavery upon himself. Don't miss this. It's not just that Judah won't leave without Benjamin. It's not just that Judah will negotiate for his brother. Rather, it is the offering up of himself a sacrifice for his brother. And remember, this is the brother, Benjamin, that his father has preferred over him his entire life. This is the brother who sat at the feast the night before and was given five times the preferment. And yet what does Judah say? He says, take me. Take me and spare the boy, spare my aged father. The Judah we read about before this chapter would never have done this. What a transformation. Who can do this? Who has the power to transform like this? Only God. Joseph may be administering the test, you see, 
But God is the one writing the test and giving the answers. He is working powerfully in the lives of these men to bring them home, home to God and home to each other. Judah is a man who finally knows his own sin. He knows himself a little. And just that little knowledge has humbled and changed him. As he said himself, God has found me out. I wonder if anything like this has ever happened to you. Have you been found out like this before? You thought of yourself as better than another. Is there someone maybe even in this room of whom you've said, well, at least I'm not that bad. If so, repent quickly. Get low quickly. Get down now. In a word, fear, fear the Lord, because God's favorite way of dealing with such pride is to allow you a terrible tumble. And you don't want that. God will show you your sin and my sin. He must. It's the only way to save love and change you. He doesn't test us or Judah to toy with us or amuse himself with our torture. No, he does it because it's the only way. We have to see who we really are. If we cherish pride or rage at the sin of others, he will show us ourselves. No lesson is harder to take than seeing yourself. So brethren, brothers and sisters, beat him to it. I speak in a human terms. Run to acknowledge your own sin. Remember Paul's word to the Corinthians as they came to the Lord's Supper unrepentant in pride, believing themselves better than others. Paul gives a wonderful but cutting promise. He says, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Don't make him show you. Instead, like Judah, show him your sin. Repent and live. So we've seen Joseph's final test, which is really God's final test. We've seen how a repentant sinner, Judah, emerges as a sacrifice, an offering to make things right. And in this key speech that he gives, and then finally in 45, 1 through 15, the third scene, we see how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Look at those verses again, especially verses 1 through 8. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. For they were terrified, dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be frightened or distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it's not you who sent me here, but God. 
After Judah's noble speech and offering of himself, Joseph is finally brought to the end of himself, just as God intended. He can no longer wait. He sends everyone out of the room. Probably this was to protect his brothers. He doesn't want the whole court to know their sin and shame. This is a good example for us when we confront someone with their sin. Facebook is not the place to deal with our differences. Joseph protects his brothers' reputations, even as he remembers their guilt. Having cleared the room, Joseph reveals himself. Verse 3 says, the brothers were dismayed. They were terrified. The word used here is often used in the context of battle. For a brief moment, they had come before their judge, and their judge was their victim. And for a few moments, they imagined the kinds of death someone like Joseph could inflict on them. And they were utterly dismayed. So many wonderful Puritan writers take this moment, this verse, and say, can you imagine the moment at the end of this age, the end of the world, when the whole world will stand before its judge and your judge will have been our victim? And it will be in his hands to judge the living and dead. They're terrified. This is a miniature moment version of that. But notice, notice with me how anxious Joseph is to soothe them, to soothe them, to comfort them. He says, and this is so incredible. Verse five, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. Here is Joseph, their victim. And he is worried that they may be too distressed. He's soothing, loving those who've hurt him. Now, how has Joseph gotten to this point? How is it that uh, he, we cannot forgive even small sins committed against us? Things that don't even nearly compare to what happened to him. And yet Joseph can forgive and not only forgive, but begin to comfort them. How is this possible? Joseph tells us. In the text, he tells us Joseph could forgive because he had come to see that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And so in verse six, he explains to them that all this has been according to God's plan so that they would survive seven years of famine. Remember, Jacob's family, Jacob's family is just in year two of seven of famine, and they're already starving. So how would they or anyone have survived this famine without Joseph going down to Egypt? Can you see what has happened? Joseph has reflected on all his misery and come to a place where he is at peace with it because he knows that though he was a victim, and he was a victim, yet God was in it. He doesn't excuse his brother's sin, but he can forgive it because he is looking to God. And so dramatically in verse eight, so dramatically, he says, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. C.S. Lewis once said to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. 
And so Joseph, their victim, takes it upon himself to preach the good news to them, to say to them, comfort, comfort, my brothers. And in a moment of intense emotion, the brothers hug and kiss and talk. So much pain, so much suffering, so much grace. The testing has done its God-appointed work. It has changed Judah into the sacrificial leader Israel so desperately needs. It has saved the whole family from starvation. And God has shown Jacob that he will indeed bless him. That all the things Jacob thought were against him were actually for him. All things were working together for his good. On the morning of his resurrection, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden. It was his first appearance near his tomb. Remember, Jesus' disciples had abandoned him in the hour of his need. Peter had denied him three times. They had not prayed with him when he sought their help, and they had not stood by him on the cross. They had betrayed their elder brother and savior. But what does Jesus say to Mary? He says, go to my brothers and tell them. Jesus doesn't say, go tell those scoundrels. Go tell those traitors. Go tell those unfaithful men who abandoned me, who did not believe my word. No, he says, go, Mary, take comfort to my brothers. I have, I know, never gotten over that one word. I hope it will stick with you, too, that Jesus would say to them, brothers, after all they had done, after all their betrayal of them, he arises to power, breaks the bonds of the grave. He doesn't need them anymore. He doesn't need their prayers or their help. And yet he still calls them brothers. And then you will recall, Jesus suddenly appears to them one night in the upper room, and the Bible says they were dismayed. They were terrified. They are troubled by his parents. But what does he say? So much like Joseph, he hurries to say, it's the first words out of his mouth, peace be with you. And then he commands them to take the message of peace to all the world. He commands them, begin at Jerusalem. Begin at Jerusalem and speak peace and comfort to those who have victimized me. John Bunyan is well known for Pilgrim's Progress, but his little book, The Jerusalem Sinner Saved, is about that one little phrase from Jesus. Begin at Jerusalem. Bunyan believed rightly that in that little phrase, a clear window is given into the heart of Christ. Bunyan realized what it meant for Jesus to say that. Jesus was saying, go to the worst sinners in the world. Go to those who just chanted for my death. Go to those who turned me over to the Gentiles to be beaten and crucified. Go to those who just said, let his blood be upon us and our children. And Jesus commands his disciples, go to them and say, comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak tenderly, even to Jerusalem. This tender message is before you right now. Here is the offer of the gospel. That one day when you meet God, one day when your sin will be discovered 
and you will be dismayed, terrified like Joseph's brother, brothers. On that day, if you are a disciple of Jesus, the unthinkable will happen. Your victim, the one who you have failed a thousand times, the one who endured so much for you, your victim will become your advocate, your comforter, for he is not ashamed. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. For while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we see this reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers, we see through it and we see past it by the power of the Holy Spirit to see what it pointed toward. The reconciliation that has come to us through your son, our greater Joseph. And now we call you father. We call you father and we are not terrified or dismayed because our victim has become our comforter. May everyone here find their comfort and encouragement in Christ today. If anyone is outside of Christ, if anyone is without this elder brother, may they be found in him today. And may those of us who know him delight in him, delight in his love. And never forget that wonderful moment when we deserve judgment. And he turned to us and said, peace be still. Be comforted. Know my love. How we thank you for Jesus, our Lord. Fill us with love for him. We pray and ask it in his name. Amen.